Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. Marvin Lowe joining us now, State Street Senior Global Market Strategist. Marvin, let's just start with the bond curve, twos out to 30s. As you looked at things yesterday, where was the challenge to the Fed? Yeah, it was definitely the belly. Um, the auction, uh, like both you and Lisa mentioned, was absolutely awful. Um, it really showed that um, the expectation that buyers might come out because uh, yields have backed up so much wound up being incorrect. So um, I do think that there is a supply and demand um, issue. I think after all of the debt sales that we've seen over the course of the last year um, and expectations for continued sales going into this year, which potentially get bigger, um, is something that the Fed is going to eventually need to address as part of um, its credibility, if you will, in keeping yields within kind of this low framework while the uh, economy reopens. Marvin, build on that for us, the Fed's response or potential response to this. How inconsistent the price action of the last week has been with the Fed's new framework. The very fact that real yields have surged higher, rate hike expectations have been brought in, but inflation expectations have basically done very little over the last week. Yeah, um, it, it's absolutely a, tr a change in um, commentary, I believe. Um, there's no doubt that uh, we've, we, we, for the most part, have um, given in to the Fed being able to get close to its inflation target. That was the first part of the move that took us from January into the beginning of February, and, and all was good. Um, risk assets felt good that uh, we were reflating the economy, and everything was within the Fed framework. After that, however, the market started to push against um, the Fed's ability ultimately to hold the line. And we moved in from... Uh, I think it was probably late 2023, just two weeks ago, to at one point, based on Eurodollar futures at least, um, pricing in a late 2022 number. So, you know, within a week, within a week, week and a half, that's an aggressive move. Um, at this point, I think this morning we're still early 2023, but, you know, certainly the market is pushing the Fed as to whether or not it's going to be able to hold the line in um, in the vein of all of the stimulus that's coming along. Marvin, how much are we trying to create a narrative to fit a technical move? Yeah, I, I, think, I think that's certainly a risk, too. Um, there, there, were, there were these massive price caps yesterday. Um, I think that there's a lot going on behind the scenes, you know, whether it's uh, convexity hedging, uh, whether it's um, kind of these potential changes to SLR rules and, and bank holdings of treasuries. Um, I think all of that uh, came into play yesterday. And, you know, ironically, a lot of those type of technical factors come in at the worst time. So it was, uh, to a certain degree, fuel um, to, to a fire that was, already, that was already burning. Is there a larger point, though, to take away from the technical move, if this was technically driven, that this market, the biggest, most deep uh, bond market in the world, setting key interest rates that affect uh, foreign exchange rates, that affect borrowing costs for yeah. companies and individuals, yeah. that it is fragile, and that it's getting increasingly fragile as you have an increasing number of crowded and leveraged trades? Yeah, um, the most important number in the entire world is what that 10-year yield is, so absolutely. And we learned how important it was last year uh, when we were in the midst of the volatility and we had a similar disconnect on the liquidity side of things and how much firepower the Fed needed to use just to pull that part of the market in. Um, it, is, it is scary to think, uh, particularly given all the liquidity that the Fed has pumped into it, that we still wind uh, find ourselves in, in this situation. Um, so, yes, expect expect that choppiness because um, there there are structural issues uh, at a time when we've got you know more and more Treasury securities being put into the um, 
into the world that needs to be absorbed. Marvin, I think it's too early to say with conviction that the Fed's credibility is being tested. But Lisa, I think we can start to say that in Europe, in Australia, that that's been the story of the last 24 hours. Australia pushing back, coming in and buying $3 billion of Australian bonds at the front end, trying to cap the story at the front end because they have yield curve control there and they're struggling to control it, Lisa. On top of that, the ECB, an executive board member out this morning, once again, pushing back against this move we've seen. Well, it raises a question which you talked about yesterday, which is a good one. At what point is Jay Powell banker to the world? At what point is the volatility around the world that they're experiencing, the fact that they've got to pump more stimulus into yeah. their economies because of what he says going to affect his message? And so far, people are saying he still is very much banker to the United States. His message, statement of confidence, Marvin, statement of confidence. We've heard from them all through the week. Chairman Powell, Vice Chair yeah. Clarida, Raphael Bostic of the Atlantic Atlanta Fed president said the following, rates are still very low from a historic perspective. I'm not expecting that we will need to respond at this point. That was in the middle of this mess. What are you expecting to change on the communication side? You know what? Um, they put themselves in, in, a, in a difficult position, no doubt. Um, uh, in a lot of ways, their commentary is a glide path for uh, traders to continue to try to push yields higher. Uh, and I think that's going to happen. Um, you know, certainly while we saw volatility come up for the first time uh, this year because of yield, um, it didn't necessarily bleed into all different parts of the market. Credit yep. still is holding in fairly well. You know, high yield deals are still are still getting done. I think that gives the Fed cover for, for a little bit. Uh, broader financial conditions are still, you know, at, at the loosest that, you know, near the loosest that we've seen since, um, since uh, last spring. Uh, once we start seeing that creep up um, and more volatile days, well, let's hope we don't have volatile days like yesterday, but, but the volatility that we've seen over the last couple of weeks, if that continues, those financial conditions will start to tighten. And, um, you know, one, one part of the real economy that has been affected by this is mortgage rates. And, I, and, I, and for me at this point, mortgage rates and credit spreads are almost as important, if not more important, uh, than where the equity market is for the Fed because it affects companies and it affects the real economy. Marvin, great points and great to catch up, sir. What a 24 hours. Marvin Lowe there, State Street Senior Global Market Strategist. Okay. And joining us now, BMO Capital Markets, head of U.S. race strategy. Ian, great to catch up, sir. Let's talk about it. Pace, duration, timing. Run me through it, the bond market, the last day or so. Well, we've seen a very significant sell-off in Treasuries, and it's a type of repricing that has historically been linked with a shift in monetary policy. The Fed needs to say something, and whether it's simply jawboning, comparable to what the ECB has done, or if there is some action to be taken, the market is waiting to hear. And there aren't any scheduled Fed speakers immediately on the horizon. But that doesn't mean that we might not hear something by the end of the end of today, if not into next week. And so we're worried about is the Fed comfortable with the pace of the backup in rates? And as you pointed out earlier, it really comes down to real rates. Ten year yeah, tips real yields much higher at this point in the cycle than I think that the Fed would want them to be. So here's the Fed speak. Next week, I went through this a little bit earlier. I'll do it again. Williams coming up on Monday alongside Bostick, Mester, Kashkari. Later in the week, Brainerd, Daly, then Harker, Evans, and then Chair Powell. Closing out things on Thursday, just before payrolls Friday. How do you think the script is going to change for Chairman Powell? And given that we've heard from him literally a couple of days ago as this bond market move was developing... 
Well, if he doesn't change the mantra from we're comfortable with this backup in nominal rates to we're monitoring and watching what's going on in real rates, then the, then the move is going to extend because the market will take that as a signal that they can push this trade. And keep in mind, the 2021 trade was cheaper and steeper. And so if we get the endorsement from policymakers to let it run, I don't see what will stop 10-year yields from taking another shot in nominal space at 160, maybe up to, to 168. The biggest limiting factor is going to be the response in equities. If we see additional wobbles in the equity market comparable to what we've already started to see, that's going to be the feedback loop into tighter financial conditions that ultimately gets the market concerned that the Fed will need to do something. I've been amazed, frankly, at Powell's uh, large, I guess, indifference toward oh, this uh, backup so far. Ian, let's just be clear. I mean, yes, we've gotten a little <laughs> bit of a sell-off, but stocks were near record highs or at record highs. We've seen an incredible run. I mean, at a certain point, how much is this a parent having a very bad job controlling a toddler in the sense that, yes, you see rates normalizing, gasp, you might not lose as much money on the real rate basis if you go into bonds, but it doesn't seem like it's actually causing a disruption in risk assets. I mean, isn't it a bit premature for the Fed to come out now? Uh, I would say that would, the Fed has done a very good job of getting in front of potential shifts in sentiment, and that's the risk. The risk is, you're right, it's not a 10% correction in stocks. It's not a 20% correction in stocks. But if the Fed waits until the S&P is 20% off of the highs, they're going to have a much harder job to do in getting the, the sentiment back into risk assets. So, Ian, what does this mean about the Fed's balance sheet? I mean, if it's at $7.6 trillion and they have to come in with at least job owning, if not actual bond buying, if there is any wobble whatsoever in markets that seem increasingly fragile, does that mean that the Fed is going to keep a balance sheet that's at $7.6 trillion or much more for the foreseeable future because they now are a controlling agent in a more ongoing way? I think it's safe to say that the Fed's balance sheet is going to continue to expand. Keep in mind that there are actively buying $120 billion in bonds between treasuries and mortgages every month. And that's expected to continue into the end of the year before tapering. And tapering will take somewhere between six and nine months, let's call it. And then that gets us in a position where the Fed will have a very large balance sheet, but they will continue to run it like that. Recall before the pandemic, when the Fed tried to normalize its balance sheet, we saw reserve scarcity that stopped that process. So I think it's very safe to say the Fed is going to have a large balance sheet for the foreseeable future. And I think the question you're raising is a really important one. It's not about waiting for a repeat of December 2018. It's about providing the adequate guidance to help people understand what the reaction function is. Now, on rates, I think they've done that. On the asset purchase program, I really don't think they have. And earlier this week, when they say things like it's a state statement of confidence. Yes, it is. High real yields is a statement of confidence in the forward outlook. But if you're a central bank right now, you can also just add on the line really simply, we'll be vigilant about what happens at the long end in case it leads to undue tightening of financial conditions and feeds back into the economy. Ian, that's not an expensive line to fit in, is it? No, it certainly isn't. And I don't think that it is one that would materially shift the monetary policy stance. It will simply be an acknowledgement of what has gone on in terms of the price action and its potential ramifications. Ian, great to catch up. Ian Lennon there.
BMO Capital Markets Head of US Rate Strategy. We need to get this economy reopened and we need to get Lisa's kids back to school. It's a big, yes. big issue for parents across the nation. Joining us now, I'm pleased to say, is Congresswoman Ashley Hinson, Republican from Iowa. And Ashley, I know you used to be a news anchor, so I won't play any tricks. I'll play it straight down the middle and keep the questions short. <laughs> Ashley, how do we get this country and the kids of this country back to school? Well, uh, Jonathan and Lisa, thank you so much for having me and good morning. It is essential for kids to get back to school. Uh, my kids back in Iowa um, are about to get up, uh, get ready, eat some breakfast and get on the school bus today because our schools in Iowa are open and Iowa's led the way on this. But unfortunately, about a third of students across the country are still only learning from behind screens. So um, we can get them back to school. The science shows that kids can be back to school safely. Um, so we need to do that with $54 billion in money that's already been appropriated to go to get school reopen. Um, so that's why I filed the Reopen Schools Act. We need some accountability on this money to ensure that um, our, our teachers get back in the classroom, they get back safely, and that our kids get back. Um, they're falling behind. There are mental health challenges that are just growing um, immensely. The number of emergency room visits for our young people um, are increasing. Um, and that's troubling to me as a mom. So um, we have to get these schools reopened and we can do it uh, with the money that's already been um, appropriated and spent. Um, and we, we just need to make sure that there's some accountability there so we do get these kids back in the classroom. I sense from you it's not a resource issue. What do you think's holding us back? Well, unfortunately, I think um, politics have been getting in the way here, and our kids shouldn't be a political football. And keep if we keep moving the goalposts here, we keep pushing back what that, uh, that uh, end result is. One day in, in a classroom um, is not enough for our kids, and it's not as easy as just walking down the stairs and logging onto a computer for so many families. Um, I'm hearing from so many people, you know, they had to go to sit in the library's parking lot to access the Wi-Fi to be able to complete their work. That's a reality for so many families, and it's not easy to do. And so, um, unfortunately, I think politics has gotten in the way. Democrats have actually blocked my bill three times already. So um, this shouldn't be a partisan issue. Uh, getting our kids back to class shouldn't be a partisan issue. We need to be getting our next generation um, back where they belong, learning with a teacher um, in a classroom. So are you willing to put your weight behind the $1.9 trillion stimulus, given the fact that within that is a good chunk of cash in order to get kids back to school? Because President Biden agrees with you. He says this is crucial. We just need to put the funding behind it. Well, um, unfortunately, as the bill stands right now, I don't plan to support it. Um, there's an additional $130 billion that is set to go to schools, but only 5% of that is set to be spent this year, which to me means that that's not really about getting kids back in the classroom. Um, in fact, about 9% of the bill is designed as that targeted COVID relief, but only 9% is designed to get uh, more vaccinations, shots in arms, um, the accountability there for contact tracing and testing. So when you look at everything else in this bill, um, only that is what's dedicated and uh, that small amount of education funding that's set to be spent this year. Um, it's a signal to me that that's not really the priority here. And so, so that's why I'm trying to make sure that there is accountability here. We're talking about a trillion dollars that's still left from that last package that was passed at the end of December before I was even in office that hasn't been spent yet. Um, so when I look at that, um, we have to stand up for taxpayers and we need to make sure that um, the people who are getting this money are following through on what the intent was, which was to be used to open schools and do it safely. Congresswoman, a lot of people come on this show, economists, and they talk about how we can already see the money going into the economy directly that was uh, passed back in December, that the aid that has been provided year to date uh, or going back to, to last year helped revive the economy and turbocharge the recovery that will allow more people to get back to work. Given that more money, economists say, will help the economy move at a faster pace and get to a 
good speed quicker. What's the reluctance to go ahead with this? I mean, is it bigger debt loads? It's very unclear to a lot of people. Yeah, well, I think there's a few uh, elements in this package that to me are the poison pill. One of them being the $15 minimum wage uh, mandate. Uh, you know, that's still in the House version that's going to be passing through. And so to me, that's very clear that that's a, a priority. It shouldn't be in this bill. We should be having conversations about that in a separate um, entity but or a separate environment. Um, but again, this this whole process wasn't it, it wasn't how process should move. It didn't make it through. We didn't we didn't get the chance in our budget committee to offer amendments um, to try to make this bill better. Uh, you talk about uh, $350 billion bailouts to blue states. Uh, the well, congressional office said it was supposed to be $35 billion. That's what's actually needed. So to me, it's just this, it's an overspending. It's a spending package. It's not a targeted COVID relief bill. Congresswoman, you've had experience with infrastructure spending in your home state. Given that this bill is likely to be passed, would you support an infrastructure bill in addition to the current uh, fiscal support and fiscal stimulus that's been passed? Well, I, I hope we do get to work on an infrastructure package, and um, that is something that's passion of mine back home. Um, I understand infrastructure is economic development, and in the true Iowa fashion, um, the great Iowa line, if you build it, they will come. Um, we know that in Iowa, infrastructure is a crucial part of our economy. Um, we're an ag state, and we're a manufacturing state. We need to get those products to market, and we need to have the infrastructure to do it. Um, I think infrastructure, though, also not just your roads and bridges, but uh, broadband, we've seen be such an important issue in the last year. So that's something that I'm very passionate about and I want to work on for Iowans. So um, I'm hopeful we get to consider an infrastructure package. But uh, unfortunately, this package, $1.9 trillion, um, it's not targeted cover relief, which is what we should be considering here. Ashley, wonderful to catch up. Please stay close. Come back soon. We'd love to talk more. Congresswoman Ashley Hinson there, Republican from Iowa. There's a question of what the world will look like once COVID ends, once the pandemic subsides, and not just the future of vacation, which we're all planning, hopefully, uh, in the, sometime in the near term if we can, but also for work. And this is something in a subject of high controversy. Susan Lund has been studying it at McKinsey. She's a Global Institute partner there. And they've been putting out a series of reports on the future of work and how it will transform, how the COVID pandemic has accelerated some of the technological changes that really were already underway. Susan, can can you just talk about one of the largest findings from your latest report in terms of fundamental changes that you're already seeing take hold and what that means for the future of work? Hi. Well, what we found is that some of the changes in consumer and business behavior that were forced on us in the pandemic are going to stick. And the impact of this in the workforce is that we may see a lot of jobs that weren't really affected by technology and other trends like those in food service and retail. A lot of frontline low-wage workers could find demand for their services going down over the long term. But we already kind of figured this would happen, right, with artificial intelligence and with other technological advances. Is there something that structurally has changed or gotten accelerated beyond what people are expecting in terms of these jobs going away? It's really been accelerated. COVID-19 has been a massive shock to both consumers and businesses. And we were forced to do things and try new ways of interacting that many people had resisted. So for instance, remote work. I'm sitting here on Zoom and many executives uh, had really resisted the idea that people could be productive from home. Well, now we know that's not true. Uh, you look at e-commerce or telemedicine, usage went up tremendously. And when we look at the consumer pulse survey results that we do, 
uh, monthly around the world, we find a lot of those new users that were forced to try a digital interaction are finding that it's convenient and efficient. And so it's going to stick. So we really saw this step change in behavior during the last year. Um, and that's why the disruption going forward is, is going to be different than just the gradual evolution we had been experiencing uh, before the pandemic. Susan, this is an incredibly important conversation from an economic perspective as well. When we talk about wages, we talk about the employment rate and what we're targeting here in the United States. We've been talking a lot about the Federal Reserve this morning and how they're aiming for full employment of possibly three and a half percent. Is that type of unemployment rate possible in an environment where a lot of services jobs Jobs, where a lot of these uh, lower wage jobs that you're talking about simply disappear? It's possible in the long term, uh, but it's going to require people currently in those low wage service jobs to gain skills to get into the growing fields, whether it's um, a more technical field like marketing or supply chain management or healthcare um, or a technology related job. So the key is going to be can we provide opportunities uh, for people to, in a short amount of time, a matter of weeks or months, uh, learn the skills they need to get into a career ladder, get on the first rung of a ladder that moves them upward? Okay, so the skills that they need, is this sort of computer programming? I mean, what skills are the important skills for a vastly transforming technological backdrop that takes you know, a lot of flexibility, frankly? Well, what we need is people with a lot more specific, job-specific vocational skills. Like, yes, obviously, we're going to need a lot more people in technology. But there's good news for people who are not uh, technology folks. Uh, we need more workers with socio-emotional skills because that's what machines don't do. They're not very good at coaching and mentoring, training others, teaching, um, caregiving roles. Um, we also need people with creativity and critical thinking. But I think for the vast majority of the workers we're talking about that are going to need to switch occupations, all they need is a foothold. So there are now a variety of programs across the country in where in a matter of months, you can teach someone, say, the basic skills to be a certified nurse assistant. And then that gets them on the on the career ladder uh, in nursing. Or you can go to a coding boot camp and get your first job in IT support. Um, and get onto a digital career path. So we've got to think about those types of programs because for people mid-career with families and mortgages, you know, going back to school, even community college for two years is simply not going to be an option. So uh, th there's a real question here structurally about what this means for the society. And not to paint this in such a big brush, but I was reading this Project Syndicate essay uh, this week by Stanford professor Michael Spence where he was talking about how we shouldn't be looking at greater unemployment as a result of artificial intelligence and some of the technological advances, but rather a greater dispersion in wages, a widening in the wealth gap, the wealth disparities that we see, people at the high end earning that much more, people at the low end uh, earning that much less. How concerned are you about that? Well, I am concerned. The findings of our research show that um, it's possible over the next decade that all the job growth is going to be in jobs that are currently high wage, meaning the top 30 percent of the income distribution. Um, what that means is that all the folks now in lower wage jobs or middle wage jobs are going to see flat or declining demand for what they're doing. Um, so, and we see that already in the employment data, right? The level of employment for high wage jobs recovered by last October, whereas we're still at um, a double digit unemployment rate for people in low wage jobs.
Susan Lund, thank you so much for being with us. Susan Lund, McKinsey Global Institute partner on this really important topic. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.